By the way, a little trivia. Five by five means loud and clear. Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's on it's on a scale of one to five for loudness and clarity. Ah. I would right. search for that on Wikipedia, but it's down. <laughs> <laughs> My father was an Air Force jet fighter pilot, he told me. So there. There you go. Got it from an expert. Yeah. Our listeners only care about one thing. What's the better language, Ruby or JavaScript? <laughs> uh, seems bad. I think I have to keep my feelings to myself since I'm going to be on a JavaScript podcast. <laughs> I, I should just say, um, as a caveat, almost everything that I have to say on this is basically like my opinion based on projects that I'm running. So I'm happy to happy to talk about it, but I'm not super excited about saying like you should definitely do this because I, <laughs> I don't. I think I think we're basically all noobs now. So I, I'm. I'm willing to speak as a noob who's maybe a little bit ahead, and that's about it. No worries. Everything you say will stick with you pretty much forever. (laughs) Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, This week on our panel, we have a special guest rogue, Yehuda Katz. Hey, nice to be here. You haven't been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Uh, sure. Um, I'm Yehuda. I've been programming for a bit. I'm basically a noob compared to everyone else in the Ruby community who's been programming since, like, Smalltalk or when Lisp was created or whatever. Um, I worked on Merb for a while. That was sort of my first big public project. Got merged into Rails. Uh, worked hard on Rails 3. Um, Rails 3 is now in very capable hands with Aaron. I still, you know, participate in Rails development, but these days I'm much more involved in JavaScript stuff, um, specifically Ember.js. And uh, in my work on Ember.js, I've been doing a lot of work lately on making the Ruby side of things work well with uh, JavaScript-heavy apps. So I've been working on projects like um, Active Model Serializers, Rake Pipeline, stuff like that. So I would say my sort of my history is I started working on JavaScript projects first realized that I was going to need some back end, got into Ruby, got into Rails, and then sort of circled back around, and now got heavily back again to JavaScript. All right. Uh, Also on our panel, we have David Brady. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, hey, this is David Brady, and I know how to mute my microphone uh, accidentally. So, uh, yeah, like Yehuda, I have spent a large number of years circling back to the beginning of my career, and here I am. (laughs) Hello, sir. (laughs) Also on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hey, this is Avdi, and today, in protest of SOPA, I will be wearing a burqa instead of a golden bikini. (laughs) Woohoo! Yes. It's a good thing we can't see you. Uh, Also on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Hello, sir. And finally, we have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. And I just want to point out that Lisp is actually older than I am. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> That's a good and, point. And I'm Charles Maxwood from TKDO. Citation needed. <laughs> uh, I can do that. It's in Land of Lisp. <laughs> I think we need two citations. We need his birth certificate, too. Yep. <laughs> oh, long yeah. Long farm, long farm. <laughs> Susser Berthers. Susser Berthers. Yeah, will you accept a birth certificate from Hawaii? <laughs> uh, so what are we up to today? I'm James getting over t- my Wikipedia withdrawal. <laughs> we couldn't read Wikipedia today, so we decided to get together and record a show. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be aw- it's going to be awesome. Uh, we're not going to sound nearly as smart as we usually do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, what do you think about this technology? Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. My brain is boycotting because of so- SOPA. <laughs> Last night I was up until like 2 a.m. with insomnia, and having insomnia with a big portion of the internet blacked out sucks. Uh, screw the SOPA protests, man. I hope they get their way and go away. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, in danger of being on topic, I thought I'd uh, lob some questions Yehuda's way. So okay. you you talked a little bit about how you've done a lot of work in JavaScript and a lot of work in Ruby. Um, 
but I was wondering if you could talk maybe more about the specific projects. Like, I believe you began in jQuery. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually, part of why, so a minor reason why I was got involved in Merb early on was that I was actually pretty upset with how Rails was handling jQuery stuff or JavaScript stuff with RJS and uh, also frustrated by the prototype dependency, which I think made sense in the beginning, but lasted far too long. Um, and so I was involved in jQuery pretty early. Wait, wait, wait Yehud, are you saying prototypes are good for starting out? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, so so prototype, prototype the library was a good, a good library, and I think it, it got people on the right track. But I think John was obviously onto something, and everyone knew it right away. And it didn't take very long before jQuery had more users than prototype. Um, and I, I, I think the amount of – so eventually Rails has become a little bit better about changing defaults. But essentially for the longest time, Rails was basically whatever DHH came up with when he first made the first version of Rails was stuck with Rails forever. And that was definitely something that when we did Merb, we said, we're, you know, we're going to take the opportunity to actually think about the right defaults here. Um, and uh, I, I'm I'm okay with you know test unit still being the default, but jQuery was clearly wrong. Um, but I got I got involved in jQuery very early, primarily because I I basically got a job as a web designer because I was a print designer in college and I was looking for a job, and uh, I said web design I know print design that's basically the same thing right seems good, um, and then I learned very rapidly that they were not remotely the same thing and I needed <laughs> to learn to program. Um, so I programmed as a kid, but I really didn't do any hardcore programming until that point. Um, so I went to a, a talk about JavaScript um, that I paid some money for, my company paid some money for, which was by Thomas Fuchs, who did Scriptaculous and uh, learned, was learning quote-unquote Ajax at the time. Um, and I essentially Thomas Fuchs at the end was like, by the way, all this is cool, but Rails is it for you. You should check out Rails. So I checked out Rails. Ironically, could care less, couldn't care less about the... Um, built in Ajax stuff, but obviously got into Rails. Um, and my my involvement with jQuery basically early on was mostly documentation based. So I I built this tool called Visual jQuery, which was for the longest time like the main documentation tool. It basically categorized all of jQuery stuff. Um, I was involved in getting jQuery to get its documentation into an XML format to begin with, because initially it was just a wiki page that I was scraping, and I was like, this really sucks. It would be great if there was XML that I could pull in and. Um, so that was sort of my initial involvement. And then I got involved in Rails, uh, worked on a pretty crazy project involving Microsoft Project and uh, storing Microsoft Project data in Postgres schemas and other crazy stuff. Um, and that caused me to be like, well, Rails is cool, but sometimes when you're doing stuff that Rails didn't intend or think about, it's really not cool, um, which is basically how I got into Merb. Um, and then eventually, like, I basically, I essentially got Rails... Uh, with very good people to 3.0, and I was me and Carl were thinking like, okay, what's next? Like, it seems like Rails is on a good track now. Obviously, we want to still be involved, but it doesn't seem like full time is still needed. What else is happening? And we both felt like mobile and the growing JavaScript world was important. Um, so, Carl and I started working on some stuff. We ran into Charles Jolly, who I had known because because the original version of Sprout Core was built on Merb. Um, and he was like, oh, you should join me. Sproutcore is cool. You don't need to build your own thing. Uh, we joined him, said, hey, Sproutcore is cool, but it's like pretty huge, monolithic, uh, not very good for web style apps. We'd be, we, should, we think we should take it in a different direction. So we essentially forked off while I was working at Strobe, started working on Sproutcore 2, um, eventually realized that it was sufficiently different from what Sproutcore 1 was that it should be renamed, and that's sort of the story. And so that project became Ember.js, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, so basically Sproutcore 1 uh, was, is a Cocoa-inspired framework. And the main thing that Sproutcore 2 slash that became, now became Ember got from Sproutcore 1 is the object model. So the object model is very inspired by Cocoa and um, has bindings and observers baked in at its core. So that's in contrast to something like Backbone, which has a mix-in that you could use for events, but it doesn't really have an object model per se. Um, so it sort of has like a patchwork object model. So views are one thing, and um, and basically that's the that part of what Sproutcore was is actually relatively small compared to the view layer. So we we rewrote that. Um, actually, Charles rewrote it. He was planning on rewriting for a long time, and that was the 
that became the foundation of Sproutcore 2. And then everything from the view layer up essentially was reconceived, rethought in terms of HTML, CSS templates, stuff like that. So Yehuda, just by way of uh, immediately disillusioning all the small talk lovers out there, just to clarify, you're talking about Ember JS, not Amber JS. Yeah. Correct? So, so there was a there was a little confusion. So we actually started back when we started Sproutcore two. We um, marketed Sproutcore two as Amber. Um, Sproutcore had a history of having beer names, and I was I happened uh-huh. to have an Amber beer in front of me. So Amber seems mm-hmm. good. We I gave a bunch of talks in which I used the name Amber. Um, we uh, we we talked about it in blog posts. It was like relatively public, but we never actually shipped as Amber. And at some point, we were like, "Okay, that was a code name. We don't really need to use that anymore. We'll start talking about Sproutcore 2. And then eventually, we were like, "Okay, we're gonna we're not gonna call ourselves Sproutcore 2 anymore. What's a good name? Well, we called ourselves Amber. We'll just use that." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the time when we started, it was not used, and we mm-hmm. so we didn't do the appropriate thing, which would have been to take a second pass. And then we, so we were like, hey, Amber, everybody. And then everyone was like, oh, my God, there's another project called Amber. So we, um, we, said, we, took, we sort of took a day to say, well, on the one hand, we kind of used this name for a long time. It would be like if someone was like, we have a new Linux distro. It's called Longhorn. Like, everyone would probably be like, no, yeah, that's weird. But, but we, yeah. we didn't feel like the uh, small talk guys were doing anything in bad faith and it was easy enough to change, although it felt really silly at the time. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Amber Jones. I, I love small talk, but I have to wonder if they picked the name Amber because it, they found this dinosaur programming language DNA trapped in Amber. Uh, Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <Roar>! I think... <laughs> Our analogy was basically putting the dinosaur Sproutcore in Amber. And I think Amber is a better name. The, uh, it, it, well, I, I think Amber with an A uh, gets used a lot. It was the code name for uh, OpenDoc once upon a time because yep. Amber, you, you find stuff embedded in it. So. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, so. so this week you can do, take all the hate mail you were going to send to Josh and send – or Josh. No, Josh. I, I can't speak today. Um, but today? Yeah, send, Today, well, your mouth up. is on a soapa strike. <laughs> shut up! Yeah, yeah, my mouth is black. Yeah, all my punchlines are blacked out due to soapa. <laughs> are you anyway, my my because... point is, send the hate mail to me. That's what I was saying. Send it to me. Okay. Because you need someone to talk to. Slowly, <laughs> 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 Wikipedia is down. Because I'm so lonely. <laughs> Hate mail's the only mail I get. <laughs> it's the only it's it's the only form of validation I get. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> so Yehuda, I have a kind of a broad question for you. Okay. Um you you've been involved in in two pretty major project um I don't think it's even fair to call them refactorings at that at this scale. It's it's almost almost refurbishment or rearchitecting or something like that. Massive up, updates uh, where you module modularize a project and and rewrite large chunks of it. Um, at least we, two by my by count. We used to call that quantum leap. <laughs> I, I also I would consider Merb a similar pro, similar case. Um, so I okay. was I got involved in Merb around when Merb was oh four oh five and. Um, by the time Merbo 9 started literally with an empty repo and tried to maintain some semblance of backwards compatibility. So, so um, and, and I think uh, a lot of people in, in, in software are probably familiar with the, the second system syndrome where you have a first system and you get a lot of bright ideas about how, you know, the first system sucks and, and we're going to totally do everything better. Um, we're going to rewrite it and do it better. And, and that rarely works out, um, in, you know, in practice, um, the the second system tends to just drag on and drag on and, and never get anything out the door. But you have actually managed to to get um, the, some of these second systems out the door. I'm just curious uh, if you have some some observations on how to make that work. So it's worth noting that uh, Ruby is also a second system that got out the door. Ruby one nine is essentially a rewrite of the VM. Um, so it's, it, it's worth. I think the the over, the general uh, impression that second systems tend to fail is probably uh, the op- I don't know what the opposite of survivor bias is, but failure well, bias. It, People, it may, so 
so people know about things like Pearl Six because they drag on for a long time, right? So when a project, it's like the big dig. Every people think that infrastructure projects tend to fail because the big dig took a long time, right? You you hear about it, it's in the news. So people think that second systems tend to fail because the ones that tend to fail are are really big deals. They're like kind of like the poster child for systems that tended to fail. I think the big problem. So I I can only hypothesize. I I have not had a second system that like epically failed, but I can hypothesize that like some things that I've seen while working on these projects that would have been warning signs that we did not do that probably would have caused failure. Um, so obviously, if when you're doing a second system, you cannot actually uh, redo everything. You are not. You can. You should not say like we are going to make everything perfect because obviously, if you do that, you will never finish. And I think. Uh, like Pearl Six has this problem. It is it's basically just going to drag on forever because they're never going to ship. Actually, so I worked on Strobe, which never really shipped, and that was sort of our problem. And this is not really second system, but we just we desired perfection. So if you desire perfection, you will never ship. TextFate had this problem, right? Desire perfection. If you desire perfection, you never ship. And a lot of times, people who build the first system, they're not trying. They say they're trying to ship a second system to fix certain targeted issues, like. In Rails, one of the, the probably the biggest thing that I wanted to fix that we got done was that the plugin system was basically a giant module uh, monolithic rail ties gem that connected all of Rails into one as glue. And basically, what that meant is that if you were not Rails, there was no literally no way to hook into the Rails initialization process and to do anything that Rails was doing. So, in order to improve the overall ecosystem, we were like, we would like to change how Rails works. So instead of Active Record being magically glued into everything else. You know, by hard coding everywhere, we would like to figure out what the APIs are. We talked about that a bunch. And that was like a big deal. And so we made sure to get that right. But there were other things like the testing in Rails is actually pretty crazy. Like so much of the testing is half-hearted, bad mocks that hook into internal stuff. And so there were periods of time where we spent a lot of time saying like, okay, we would really like to have tests that are less insane. We are going to start rewriting or porting all the action controller tests and make them using a better structure. And then eventually we were just like, you know, we just spent two weeks modifying the action controller test. It would probably be easier at this point if we just, in the testing environment, wrote whatever hack we need to, to write to make the existing, the new code that we're writing work against the old testing infrastructure. And we basically just said, you know, we can't, we can't do everything. We're just gonna, we're just gonna do that. And for, uh, as an example, for Ember, we basically said, we're not going to revisit right now every single quirk of the object model. There's gonna be some quirks, like an example of this is whether or not computer properties should be cacheable by default. There's like a very long thread about this. Um, and we could have probably spent a long time revisiting it, which would have required really rethinking the object model, how property validation works. And we were just like, you know, we'll just, for now, we will just assume that the current object model implementation is basically correct and we will wait to release before we revisit. And I think, I think that's basically, you have to, when you build, when you, re, when you rewrite or re, mass, refurbish is a good word, when you refurbish an existing library or tool, it's important to actually pick your battles and think about what things are actually important, what things are going to have high value, um, so, like, having rewriting action controller to be modular instead of being a ton of alias method chain hacks was high value. Um, active record, actually, we didn't touch at all. Like, active re- me and Carl didn't really really rewrite active record. Um, a bunch of people added arrow stuff, and actually that's and, and that stuff ended up being really slow. Uh, it has taken a few releases to make it fast again, right? So there's, I think if you look at any of the projects that I've been involved in that are high profile, you'll see that there's a bunch of stuff that was not perfect that the Pearl guys would probably be like, ah, oh, you should probably wait to release until that's all good, but that will never happen. So was a big part of that like a, a dialogue where, where somebody would say, oh, and, and this part, this, this part's really nasty, we need to, to redo this as well, and somebody else would say, say no, don't go, don't, don't go down that road? Yeah, I, th- I think that needs to happen. I th- and I think Ruby, so I think Ruby and Python 3 is a good example of this. I, so Python 3 was like, there was a lot of ugliness. And, you know, I can't, I can't really say. Maybe Python 2 was sufficiently ugly that bra- breaking changes were required to make Python 3 good. I, uh, for example, in Python 2, there are two class systems. It depends on whether you inherit from object or not, whether or not you get a new style or an old style class. Python 3 only has new style classes. Um, this means that what? there's a lot. Yes. <laughs> It's true, there should be one and only one way to do it, but there are two types of classes. Um, uh, so basically, at one point, they decided that like being able to call super... 
being able to call I, I just dropped that. Sorry, the Zen of Python. I'm sorry. I just um, at one point they decided that being able to call super was a good idea, and they could not add it in a backwards compatible way to old style classes. It was super and other other features that exist in modern class syntaxes. So they basically said we have every old thing is basically an old style class, which is like a type. And every new every if you want to opt into new style class syntax, you have to inherit from object explicitly, and then you get all these new features. So this is like how Python works. Probably someone decided this is, was sufficiently ugly that they would have to break this in Python 3. Um, also, strings in Python 2, the string literal is a byte string, and you have to use a U to make it a Unicode string. In Python 3, a string literal is a Unicode string. You have to use a B to make it a byte string. Right? So maybe probably someone decided um, in sort of the same way Ruby did, strings should be in type encoded by default, and they just did that. So basically the end result of that is that um, Python two, Python three will pro- the adoption is probably going to drag on forever because there are so many backwards incompatible changes that are not not possible to address merely at runtime, right? So in Ruby, uh, like if if a method on enumerable changes, Rails can just be like, we're not going to use that method. We'll use a different method which will check and we'll do the right thing, or like yeah. or like every every um, all the like instance variables in- reflection uses symbols instead of strings. So we'll just do a layer on top of that. Those are runtime hacks. But in Python, there are sufficient numbers of things that can't, you can't at runtime decide, oh, this thing was an old style class. We should now make it a new style class or whatever, right? You can't, you can't fix that in a way that is reliable. So actually, that's not a good example because you could just, in Python 2, always inherit from object. But there are cases like the string case where it's not easy to write a Python 2 script that you can then at runtime mutate. So basically, Python 2, I think Python 3 has more second system syndrome because they just, they decided to break too many things, right? This, so. This is- this is the second second system. Syndrome. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I, so, so like Django is still struggling to be compatible. Python three and Rails one, Ruby one nine two or one nine one came out around the same time, but we're like basically all the way over the adoption curve because we didn't break anything. And they're like sort of there's someone who has written like an experimental patch that will allow Django to work in Python three. And and it's just I think Ruby one nine and Rails three both were like. We're not backwards compatibility is, is extremely important. So like in Rails three, the router, if you if you pass a if you take a, if the block takes a parameter, we're like we're going to go into old style router mode. Um, in Action Mailer, we're like we're going to support all the old style syntax, right? Because we just we were like get actually upgrading. It's going to be hard enough with all the changes. We're going to try really hard to not break backwards compatibility to kill everything. And I and that. I think like Rails three did a better job than like Struts two. Struts two is basically a total rewrite. No Struts one user has upgraded probably to Struts two because it's like way too different. And Rails three, I think, got around that problem by by actually caring about backwards compatibility somewhat. Yeah, yeah. I I think the transition from from Rails two three to Rails three was actually a hell of a lot easier than the transition of Rails you know one eight whatever to two zero. That was... Oh, I couldn't I couldn't disagree more. I, uh, yeah, upgrading from one two six to two point took me ten minutes and two lines of code change, and upgrading I, I, my. I'll my say you. Two- I'll say you probably weren't doing very much interesting in your app then. So I, okay. You, well, you, so you, <laughs> oh, you probably. Oh, oh, oh. So just I, I would I will I will rephrase what Josh said. I think you probably weren't using a lot of plugins. Um, I was I, not using any plugins. Well, I was right, using one so, one plugin, so, and I wrote it myself. So, so in, the, in the general case. If you are writing a relatively small to medium-sized app and don't have plugins, upgrading versions of Rails, you, you'll usually get a lot of deprecation warnings, but not like – things will probably mostly work. But plugin, the plugin ecosystem – I was just tweeting about this. The plugin ecosystem in, in Rails 2x was basically hack whatever you need to hack. And mm-hmm. so like the ch- – I'm surprised that basically the only reason why anything ended up working was that most of the popular plugins – did a lot of work to make their own backwards compatibility versions, backwards yeah. compatible versions of Rails for Rails three. Yeah. So. so, yeah. so sorry, sorry for that slam, Dave. That's all right. No, I, I, you want I have I have calluses on my crotch from all the punching. It's it's good. <laughs> so I'm, I pers- I personally am not surprised that upgrading to Rails three was not trivial, but I think I think it's easy to because of the fact that people experience pain, which is expected. It's easy to miss the fact that the router syntax works, that all the old active record syntax works. That actually oh, I, made I love works, it. Right? I love it. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. I love what you guys have done with Rails 3. Um, 
And so unfortunately, I, that seduced me into like changing my routes file instead of just leaving the old Rails two. I should have just left the Rails two routes in, and I, I would have been fine. <laughs> so eventually, we we maybe for Rails four. Eventually, we will deprecate the old route syntax. But I, the fact that we basically left around a copy of the old router in our in Rails just yeah. so that people wouldn't have to upgrade. I I think it's it took us a year and a half to do Rails three. Easily six months of that time was just like. How do we make sure that existing apps will actually boot? How do we make sure? Because we, right. ch- I mean, we changed the entire initialization process, right? Right. So anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. So I kind of want to take a different tack here, and, and this is something similar to what we're going to be talking about on the JavaScript Jabber show later today. Cool. But um, uh, what, what direction do you see the web going? Because it seems like a lot of the projects you've worked on with jQuery, Merb, Rails, uh, Ember JS, you know, they're all kind of web-oriented frameworks. Yep. Um, so, what what direction do you think things are going to take here within the next year or two, as far as uh, web development goes? Is it going to start heading more toward these JavaScript frameworks? Um, is is the role of Rails going to change a lot? Uh, where where do you see this all kind of heading? So, I'm going to stick to the party line or my party line of this, which I've been saying for a long time. Although I, I feel like I feel like the world is shifting more towards my party line, but um, I, I really I think that Rails is an incredibly good API server. I think people miss that aspect of Rails. Um, so I I have now worked on the last three, maybe four Rails projects that I've worked on have not had a view layer at all, and I have not for in, for one second considered using something like Sinatra or Node because Rails itself has like. I, I know about it. So for me, I'm like, I don't want to lose all that security support. I don't want to lose all this HTTP support that's like figuring out what your the actual remote IP address is. Like I know basically all the stuff that gets done that's not in Action View. Act, action View is actually a relatively small part of Rails. So um, I, I, know, I like you know reload, being able to reload. I think a lot of people look at um, – they say, oh, you know what? I, in my mind, so the, the API surface area of Rails is actually very view-centric. Or it's it's like model and view centric. So for a lot of people, if the view is ripped out, it's like, well, there's Active Record, but like, why couldn't I just have a bunch of Active Record files in a Sinatra app? And then it's like, well, actually, you don't have a development mode, you don't have migrations without doing some some kind of hacks, like figuring out how to do migrations on your own, right? There's like all this infrastructure that's built up. You have to figure out your own security stuff, and then they'll say, well, I could just use like Rack. IP spoofing middleware. Like, well, then you have to go figure out, like, you have to now think about all the things that Rails are doing for you for security, find the appropriate middlewares, hope that they're up to date. Um, so I, I think my sort of my perspective from having been in the guts of Rails is that even though the surface area of Rails is an API is very view centric, the actual code is doing a lot, a lot of things that are not view centric. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the corollary to Lever's Law. Uh, Lever's Law says everything the system does for you, the system also does to you. And what you're claiming is that everything that Rails does to you, Rails also does for you. Yes, I, I accept. Um, yeah. no, so, I, I, so if you strip out the, the view layer, then is it just an MC framework, like uh, MC framework or, or MIC framework? MIC framework. Um, MC Rails. <laughs> anyway. Um, you can maybe, edit that I out. Think, I think it would be fair to consider the JSON uh, generating part of Rails a um, the view layer in in the apps that I built. So um, I, I me and Jose wrote a library called Active Model Serializers that was we had originally hoped would be part of Rails, but um, essentially what happens when you stop when the JSON stops being an afterthought and starts being the front end sender part of an app that is uh, being consumed by a rich JavaScript client is that. There's a lot more thought that goes into that JSON. So um, Carl and I, and I talked about this last year at RailsConf, we've been saying for a long time that it's actually very important that your JSON that you generate from the server is relatively consistent. So if you're in the client and you – so for most people, you know, you're getting started, you have some jQuery, um, you want to get some customers, you hit slash customers, and you do something with the JSON response. But if you're building a rich client-side app, you probably have a lot of models, and you're probably doing that a lot. So having some consistency around what the return JSON actually looks like, such that you only have to write one method that says, given a JSON string, here's how I can extract it and do something useful with it, is very important. Um, And it's sort of, my philosophy on this is sort of the opposite of the JBuilder philosophy that DHH is championing. So DHH's idea is, we should just have a DSL that lets you customize your JSON as perfectly as possible. You, You should have full control over it. And my philosophy is, 
actually isn't Rails about convention over configuration? Shouldn't we have a easy way to just say like, I here's how I want my JSON to look? Always, I would like it to be uh, the the big the important questions are like, should objects be associations be embedded as objects or as IDs? Do I want to include the um, associations in the initial payload or as lazily? So there are some questions that you need to answer, but those those questions are like essentially conventional. There should be some conventional answers. There should be an easy way to change it. And then when you make JSON, you should basically be saying, I want these attributes, these associations. Please make JSON for me. I don't, actually, I don't want full control. It's like I basically look at something like JBuilder like DHH, how DHH looked at XML. I don't want to spend a lot of time hand-tuning all of, my, all of how my JSON looks. I want to express my, the entity that I want to put into JSON, and I want to have it be emitted in a way that's conventional so that in my client I could also do something conventional and then forget about having to constantly care. Yeah, but, shouldn't you shouldn't you do both though? I mean, if it's convention over configuration, but Rails lets you go back and do configuration. If I hand an object off to the controller, it should and and say to JSON, it should render as JSON by a reasonable set of defaults, like you're saying. But if my reason, if my if my set of defaults are unreasonable. I should very easily be able to change them, and maybe that's where the builder comes in. If the builder's big and heavyweight, then I agree with you that that's well, wrong. So I, I accept. So what you're saying is true. I should I should clarify a bit, which is um, I think that two JSON is a problem. So basically, okay. two, so basically uh, the not two JSON the method in Ruby. I think it's good that we have JSON in Ruby one nine. But yeah. um, basically, you have uh, the two JSON is implemented on the model, and there are non-trivial controller level. Uh, usually authorization level concerns that are part of the process of generating JSON. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, it does not make sense to put that logic in the model, even if you somehow give the model access to the current user. That's, that's a, fair. That's well, a that's very fair. serious. It, it not only doesn't make sense, it, it, I mean, it doesn't even make, I don't know. I it's bad. To... It's a violation yeah. of separation of concerns, right? It, it doesn't uh, even yeah. make stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. I knew this. <laughs> So, so, but that does lead into a question, and, and this is something that I've actually been doing with one of the projects I'm working on for my client. I'm using Backbone JS on the front end, and so I have to give it JSON in order to make it work. Yep. And um, you know, I need to know, for example, because it's kind of a social network thing. I need to know if this user is blocked by that user, and and you know things like that. And so I'm constantly passing current user into the two JSON and I've actually customized that so that it gets a, <clears throat> a series of default uh, parameters that I want it to generate the JSON from. And then I pass in the, the current user when I, when so, I convert it to JSON. So how do you, how do you work around that? So the idea behind, so the serializer gem is sort of my beachhead into an answer here. I'm not, I, it's still pretty early and there. We may evolve it or it may turn out to not be the answer, but I, uh, sort of my the theory is that two JSON is not a method; it's a class. Two JSON is doing many things. It's it is very complicated logic, and uh, trying to have a method that does everything procedurally is is not the answer. Um, so you, what you want to do is you want to have a class that has access to the original object that you care about, um, and also has ap- access probably to the current user or some authorization context. And um, in in the simple case, you want to be able to do have some simple helpers like. Here are the attributes I would like to include from the class. Here are the associations I would like to include, possibly customized with like what keys you would like to use and whether or not things are embedded, although embedding should probably be, there should be a default that uh, happens for everything which you can opt out of. And then, uh, so then by default, you just get this JSON. It's, I think even just that is still better than trying to customize to JSON because it's, it belongs in a, it belongs in an object, not in some procedural code somewhere. Um, but then in addition to that, if you're like, so let's say you have a post which has many comments and let's imagine a simple case where um, comments were, are allowed to be blocked or removed, but admins are allowed to see the comments. So you would say in your serializer, you'd say has many comments, which would basically say, I would like to, how, whatever my embedding policy is, I would like to embed associated comments. And then you can override the comments method and uh, use the authorization information that is now available in that object to customize what the comments array looks like. Um, and then basically what happens is that the serializer will say, okay, now you're trying to make the serialize an array of comments. I'm going to go instantiate in a comment serializer. And again, you can decide a, a different one for a particular serializer. I'm going to instantiate a comment serializer and do the same process recursively. So basically instead of now having to go build a hash manually, do hash-driven development, do some procedural crazy code, hope, 
try to make sure that you have the right information, the right context, right? So the controller is kind of the wrong place for it because it doesn't really have a sense of what it is. And the model is kind of the wrong place for it because it doesn't have a sense of the current user. Um, basically have an object that's in charge of it and then have that object sort of give it some breathing room. Now that there's an object, we can add some helpers. It can feel nice because now there's a, you can have as many be in there and have it do something useful for you. You're kind of talking about something that people are either calling presenters or view models for, sure. for generating that kind of uh, you it's, know, it, transformation I would, of the data. I am, I am okay with calling it a specialized presenter for serialization. I think, why, not, why not just call it a view? Um, so it, I think so. In Rails, people consider views templates. They think of views as e- even if you look at something like uh, Markaby or Erector, those things are still conceptually templates. They're about generating HTML. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think, I, like I said earlier, I think it is a view. Um, I mm-hmm. wouldn't put it in the views directory. I think it's I, I, I think it's weird to have classes in the view directory. Um, Not if you're using Erector. Yeah, I, I, so we have a top-level serializers directory that we use. I don't, I don't really care. Is that dirty? Did I miss a dirty thing? <laughs> okay. uh, could be. Could okay. Be. Um, You're losing your touch. Yeah. Okay, that was dirty. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like I'm back in the Tilda offices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's much worse than that around here. I want to completely derail the conversation for a second and, and sure. shift, it, shift it away from technical stuff. And uh, we talk about uh, open source software and politics of thereof a bit on this show. And, uh, you know, in addition to like being involved in all the technical aspects of these refurbishings and maintaining open source software, I, you probably get exposed to a lot of the politics of it. And I you know, sitting on the outside of a couple core teams, it's easy to you know point fingers and criticize, or um, you know be really impressed with amazing efforts. But yeah, uh, if you uh, don't like their versioning, for example, yeah, yeah, that, or release yeah. processes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, you know, being on a few different teams, I think you probably have a, a a rather uncommon perspective of the politics of open source and or the process and. You know, interesting what you could say. Uh, you know, constructive about how to improve the improve that world. So I'll start with the TLDR, which is I, I sort of have a grand unified theory of things. Um, that's actually too grand of a name, but I, I have a theory of things <laughs> that comes from both writing software and being involved in large projects. Which is, mo- for most people in the world, your job is to present an abstraction layer to somebody else that hides most of what you do, and that's. That's also that's what libraries do, what frameworks do, and what people do. Um, that's what your secretary does. That's what the you know, United Airlines does for you. They present an abstraction layer to you that hides most of what you do. And, and leaky abstractions suck. They hurt. They are painful. So the people who do the best job in the world at their jobs are the people who do the best job at hiding the abstraction. And the end result of that is that there are many things that people do, that libraries do, that open source projects do that are extremely important that are crucial to getting the job done, but which basically the better the project, the person, the library is, the harder, the the less people actually know about these things by definition. So the better, the more you're doing your job, the more it is, the easier it is to bike shed you, right? If you're doing a crappy job, if you're Java, it's hard to bike shed you because there's, you're, so much of your guts are on the table, right? But if you're, if you're doing a good job at hiding complexity, people don't have to think about the complexity, so, and open source is sort of the same way. There's a, the process of even releasing a Rails version. People bike shed Rails versioning a lot. But the process of actually shipping a Rails version is very complicated. There's a lot going on. We thankfully hide that from the rest of the world because it's, it would suck if everybody had to see all the machinations involved. But the bottom line is that there's a lot, there's a lot going on uh, building consensus around you know, people on the core team, trying to understand what people's interests are. Um, DHH spends a lot of time, I think part of the best thing he does for Rails is make sure that when people want features, there are actually valid use cases behind them. Um, they're not just like some idea someone came up with in an ivory tower somewhere. Um, and this stuff, is, this stuff is very, very unexposed. Um, and, and it's sort of, I think one of the things I was saying, I think to Josh the other day, so one of the things that is negative, I think, about GitHub and I, 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 it's the positives so outweigh this that it doesn't really matter, but it is a, it, there's a cost, is that a lot, of, a lot more people are doing open source and they imagine that a huge open source project is a scaled up version of their small 
gist or simple project that they put up on GitHub. And there's really they're not the same thing. So if you if you release a project and you put it up there and you use it at your company and maybe like two or three people use it, which I think is a lot of people, or even like a thousand people use it or a hundred people use it. That project has a process that is you could leave for two months and probably you come back and maybe you have a few pull requests. If you leave if I if if everybody left Rails for a week, basically Rails would take on a life of its own. It would be like like things would happen that would be crazy. Like Ember.js is still new. It's even, it's even worse, right? There's basically there are requests for features that are, that are basically wrong, that are not plausible given the direction of the project. But if you leave for a week, you can't avoid those features getting in. So I, I think in general, people, people have, have a lack of appreciation. They have a lack of appreciation, for instance, for the security process in Rails. Like the fact that Rails, I think Rails is probably the most secure open source web framework. Part of that is that we have a security list. People actually send email to that all the time. It takes us a good amount of time for every single security thing to identify if it's real. Um, is it fake? Is it, is it a documentation problem? Does it require a patch? Is it an upstream problem? Um, these are things that we deal with that we cannot actually expose, even if we wanted to. Um, so I, I guess that, that's a long TLDR, but um, the, the abstraction that, open, that big open source projects provide to you is, is if we're doing a good job, uh, hiding a lot of complexity. And I, I sort of, there are a lot of days where I'm very frustrated by Rails um, and the politics of Rails, but I don't know how to make it, I don't know how to make it better. So there's, it's just, it's, it's, there's a world in which there's a lot of smart people working on projects and there's therefore complexity involved. And, and like I said, I, I think Rails does a very good job of both hiding the political the internal political complexity. And I don't mean like hiding the fact that there are disagreements. I think everyone knows there are disagreements, but hiding the process, like not making everyone have to deal with that and also hiding the complexity of code. And I think part, it's part of what makes Rails good. I do think it's improved over time, uh, especially in Rails camp. You know, the, uh, you know, you talked a lot about how, you know, it used to be you had to do prototype and now it's, you know, uh, you know, prototype, swap in jQuery if you want, whatever. Uh, you know, and I think that's filtered down through Rails and other pieces. Like, you know, forever it was MySQL is the one true database, and if it can't be framed in those terms, then Rails won't think about it. Whereas nowadays we see Aaron committing things that are that are you know better for Postgres and stuff like that, uh, which I think is more the way it should be. You know. Yeah, and obviously these these things are also political disagreements, right? So getting so jQuery is now the default. There was a large argument about that in the Rails 3.0 era. Um, obviously, you can't win them all, but I th- it eventually it got to the point where nobody could, with a straight face, argue that jQuery was not by far more popular than Prototype. Um, and that um, basically, my argument in the 3.0 era was almost everybody who starts a new Rails project is going to immediately replace it with Rails. Maybe we should take the time to make it integrate well. Um, but I, I guess the real obvious. So I think Josh's question about politics was astute because it essentially is a political process, and it. it I'm definitely often frustrated by things like prototype is still in Rails 3 as the default. I really wish that wasn't true. But I, it is definitely a good thing that no – basically, I, DHH pulls the IMDHH card extremely rarely. And I think mostly his, his participation is like as a facilitator to try to make sure that all the people who are – basically everyone has strong opinions. And if there's a way to make the final outcome reflect everyone's concerns, that is, that is a win. And – um, I don't. Nobody is perfect, and D, uh, DHH is definitely not perfect in this regard. But I think a lot of his Rails participation is in detecting that there are disagreements among the core team and trying to figure out what the concerns are and how. Essentially, saying, "Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna argue now. What we're going to do is everyone's going to say what the thing is that they are upset about and would like to see resolved, and then we are going to see what what a good starting point is and how we could evolve the starting point towards." To resolve the concern. So usually what ends up happening is that one, if there's an argument between two parties, one of the parties is going to end up with their thing as the starting point, which is going to make the other side upset. But the goal is to, is to say, okay, so that starting point you say is problematic because you don't like these things. How can we make that starting point evolve toward, to, to deal with those concerns? Um, so an example, um, I don't like the asset pipeline. I have an alternative that I've implemented, but um, there was a lot of concern about the asset pipeline for for a while because there was basically it was very common that people would boot Rails apps in production and it would require a JavaScript runtime. 
this was like by far basically it was like a blocker for three one shipping for many of us and we like we found an answer which was basically to have a manifest file get emitted and the reason why that was happening was because um rails would have to regenerate all the files to to know in memory what the the hex digests were um so the conclusion was that we should, it, when we generate the apps, we should dump out a manifest file that has all those hex digests so that Rails in production mode does not need to boot up sprockets. Um, so that was like an example of everyone hates the asset pipeline. Um, okay, let, what is actually the problem? And so like DHH's participation there was like, what is actually the problem? Well, you don't want a JavaScript runtime. What is causing that? What in sprockets is actually making that happen? How do we actually get to the bottom of that? And I, th- um, I think that that is, that is very useful. I think that style of leadership is helpful. That yeah, makes sense. yeah, that, definitely. I, I, I think the the big fumble around there was that it it proceeded so far, it, to and and it really required um, a large amount of community feedback to. I, I should to, be clear. Yeah, to push that. I, I should mean, to be push clear. I solution. don't. I don't like it, and I wish it was not in Rails three one. Um, but. I think that the things that were most problematic, like you could not push a Rails 3.1 after Heroku at all, right? Like the, basically a, it would have been easy for us to get entrenched into, we hate the asset pipeline. We love the asset pipeline. Okay, sorry, it's going in. Cool story. Like that's, that's like sort of the normal, when people get entrenched, it's easy to end up there. And, I, and, and again, I, I'm, I, I am actually very unhappy with the fact that the asset pipeline's in. I think it's not baked. Uh, I think... It could you it, it needs more effort, and I think um, conceptually there are things that are not correct about it. But I think the fact that we took a step back and said, okay, what are the biggest problem? What are the things that are actually causing the most pain right now? And how do we make sure that even though we don't like the asset pipeline, we get them resolved? Jose, me, Aaron, all wrote patches to fix the asset pipeline to resolve the biggest issues. I think that that's 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 the right way to do a project, even when I'm open about the fact there is a lot of disagreement here. But you can't just. Basically, we're not what we should not have done, but sometimes happens in open source projects. Is say we don't like the asset pipeline, we'll let it suck. We'll let it suck so much that everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is horrible," and then we'll win, right? If that's not you, like that basically is that's basically that's sort of so Ruby Gems did this, right? Ruby Gems did this with warnings. So Ruby Gems admitted a ton of warnings. What Ruby Gems was essentially doing is weaponizing users against gem authors, right? You, you should not be doing this. So we will make. We will make all your users file tickets against. Hand, uh, handing out pitchforks and torches, right? And I and I think yeah. I think the right thing is to say um, we are we are the Rails core team. We have users. We should try to make sure that the users does, do not do not unnecessarily have pain just so we can prove a point. Right. I, I think we should just uh, choose champions, dress them in armor, give them swords, and whoever <laughs> comes out alive is the winner. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. That, that that worked for thousands of years. Yeah. It did. It's a proven system. Yep. All right. Well, um, I hate to cut this off, but we probably ought to get to the picks, especially since we have some people with time constraints. Yeah. How, how, however, however, you can, you, you can continue this conversation on another podcast. That's right. We we are going to be doing the JavaScript Jabber podcast later this afternoon. You know, that Yehuda guy sounds like he really knows what he's talking about. And he had a yeah, I should say I'm really excited about this podcast. I I've never really done so. I did a radio show in college, which was fun. It's like I think we had like three users. It was about local student government politics, which was probably the lamest possible thing. Um, but I, I think there's the general environment around JavaScript is direly in need of people actually talking out loud, not in blog posts, but to each other about what's going on. And I think it will help a lot uh, with some of the debates that are ongoing. And so I encourage people to listen. I'm, I'm excited about it for the same reason I got excited about this one, and that is is that. I get to spend an hour or maybe a little longer talking to people who know way more about this stuff than I do. So, so Yehud, I have a quick question for you about JavaScript, and this is a TLDR because it's Ruby Rogues and whatnot. Okay. No um, so 30-second answer. You can give the longer answer on uh, JavaScript dro- uh, jabbers. Uh, coffee, coffee script, good idea or awesome idea? <laughs> um, and that, I, I, that question is not at all biased. No, no. no. On so a scale co- from ten to fifteen, <laughs> so a coffee script is addressing real pain points. I use it in uh, a very large project. I there are things about how it it's it's it basically ends up being a hodgepodge of features that are Ruby is a, it has a bunch of features that are well thought out in terms of um, how they interact with each other. CoffeeScript often does not, and there are problems with CoffeeScript that 
result in bugs that are I don't mean debugging bugs, I mean bugs that where you type the wrong thing by mistake because you because the syntax is not sensible. Yeah. Um, yeah, there yeah, surprisingly enough there's no ternary operator. Yeah, I it's just it's it's just yeah. uh, I, the but most common for me is I forget to put parentheses around uh functions that have no Right. Um, you you forget to put the parentheses at the end of your function pointer. Uh exactly. So yeah. that and that that's the that's the biggest one but there's a number of things like that uh how functions call hashes and whatnot. So. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks. All right. So into the picks. Um Avdi, go ahead and go first. All right. Let's see. Picks. I have been um kind of uh Apropos of this conversation, I have been uh, doing a fair amount of JavaScript uh, the past week or two, and um, two books have been uh, have been helping me out a lot. Uh, the jQuery cookbook from O'Reilly, and also um, I've started uh, digging into the JavaScript cookbook. Um, and uh, for the stuff I've been doing, the cookbook format has been really nice because I can pretty much just look up the specific common operation that I n- never learned because I don't. I don't regularly do tons of JavaScript, and uh, and see a nice succinct little um, little blurb about how to do it right. Um, so jQuery and JavaScript cookbooks from O'Reilly, um, and for a a less programmer oriented pick, um, I as a kid I never really read comic books, um, so I'm I'm you can all take away my nerd card right now, um, and. And later on, as I started, like, you know, acquiescing to my friends who said, you know, Watchmen is awesome and and Sandman is awesome and stuff like that, as I started trying to read those, I realized that I I kind of have a – I have some kind of mental bug which prevents me from reading comic books because I basically get overwhelmed by everything that's on – visually overwhelmed by everything that's on the page. And as a a sort of reaction to that, I wind up just tracking from from text bubble to text bubble automatically without actually seeing the pictures – um, and, uh, the other day I, I downloaded an app called Comixology onto, um, onto my phone and my, my tablet and, um, and tried reading a comic book that way. And, and they have this thing, this technology that was really invented for viewing comics on a phone, which basically just automatically tracks from, from frame to frame. So it sort of, you know, moves the view over and zooms in or out as appropriate, uh, to, to give you what you need for that, for, for just one frame. And, um, and I discovered that that actually works well with my little mental flaw, um, and enables me to enjoy it a lot better than I can, than I can enjoy the, the printed page comics. So, um, comiXology. Wow. That, that makes me cry. (laughs) That's such a sad story. (laughs) I, I should start a. We should start a foundation for my uh, for my affliction. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to sit you down with a with my uh, compilation of Watchmen and show you how the layouts across two facing pages and the correspondence of the fr- of the panels and all that just really adds a lot to the reading of the comic. Oh, oh trust me, I I understand. I mean, like, and, and, you know, I I did read through the paper version of Watchmen. I really enjoyed it, um, and I understand. Um, how some of those layouts are brilliant. Um, I just I, I've realized that if I'm not paying attention, um, just the way my mind works, um, because there's so much going on on the page, I'll I'll lose the page completely and just look at the text. Uh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, um, David. Okay, I just have one pick today. Um, this is tangentially related to. Uh, JavaScript, uh, very much related to CSS and styling. Uh, there is a project out on GitHub uh, called MSIE to VBox uh, by Max Manders, and I will paste that in our show notes. And what this is is there's a couple of – I need to write a blog post about how to set this up because it's not entirely just straight out of the box. The instructions are pretty good on the on the page, however. Uh, but what this does is it uses VirtualBox – uh, which is free to download Microsoft uh, Virtual Testing Client, uh, which gives you a version of XP that's you know uh, authorizable and usable for testing, and uh, it gives you a copy of Internet Explorer version uh, six, seven, or eight, and I think there's also a version coming out for ver- uh, IE nine, and it lets you uh, test how your site is going to look in the various uh, Internet Explorers. 
And I found it very, very useful as I'm doing development right now in Chrome and Safari uh, that, you know, the 80% of the web traffic out there is still in Internet Explorer or 40% or whatever it is. I can't remember. It, it's some number. 87.2% of uh, all percentages are just wild guesses anyway, right? So uh, if you want to see what the site looks like in an Internet Explorer, but you're on Linux or you're on a Mac and you really don't want to go you know, touch a Windows machine, uh, this is a thing that gives you a – it's a one-line command. You just type msie to vbox dash b, which tells it to boot the virtual machine, and ta-da, Windows boots up in a little window on your Mac, and you can get into Internet Explorer and go to the site and see what it looks like. It's really awesome. Super terrific. That actually sounds like something I, I'd use because I actually uh, went and bought Windows so that I could test Windows stuff, but then I have to, yep. I have to use the- Parallels or whatnot. So Yep. By the way, the VMs that Microsoft distributes work on VMware Fusion now. Cool. You can import them. Good to know. All right. James, what are your picks? Uh, So I've got a couple of Ruby community picks today. Um, First of all, the RailsConf call for proposals is up. Uh, So RailsConf is going to be in Austin this year, uh, which is a great little town if you... um, uh, haven't gone uh, down to Austin in a while. I love going down there. Uh, actually, one of my favorite things about going to Austin is uh, I try to eat outside like the entire time I'm there. Um, and that's because uh, they usually have great weather and uh, it has the largest urban bat population in the world. So the bats eat all the bugs. <laughs> so it's great. Uh, you should go to Austin. You should eat outside. You should check it out. Um Anyways, I think the roads are planning to make a trip down to RailsConf this year, so uh, you can come down, hang out with us, uh, see us, and if you're inclined, you should make a proposal for what you'd like to talk about at RailsConf. So, uh, road trip! Road trip, that's right. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, I wanted to point that out. Also, it's not an O'Reilly event this year. It's back to being just Ruby Central. Um, so I, I find that kind of cool uh, that we're taking care of it ourselves and stuff. So I'm looking forward to RailsConf this year, and I think others should do the same. Uh, The other community pick I wanted to bring up is um, uh, Ruby Heroes is up. It's time for our yearly elections, uh, and that's where we nominate all the people that are, you know, uh, not... So, like, you can't nominate DHH, because DHH gets plenty of recognition for being DHH. Uh, we instead we nominate the um, uh, people who don't receive as much recognition as they should in our community and uh, talk about why they're great and um, they get uh, you know it's there's no fame or fortune involved here they get a you know uh, award uh, that's given to them uh, but it's still nice for the community to say, hey, you know, we recognize that you're very helpful and, and stuff. Uh, and this is a timely time to bring it up because Yehuda Katz won a Ruby Hero Award in the very first year that it was available. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and other people on this podcast are probably pretty deserving, so I recommend that you go and nominate them. Is there an API I can go to to find out how many people have voted that I'd be permanently banned? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm working on that. We have decided that David Brady probably isn't eligible until they change the name to Ruby Jokers. But, you know. Um, Anyways, go nominate your favorite people in the community and tell, you know, why they're cool and uh, uh, get get them listed. Somebody should probably point out that, that James is a uh, hero, Ruby hero as well, are you not? I, I won the same year you hooted, yes. Mm-hmm. But did you win more? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I have, I, it's like uh, in that year, it's me, Ryan Bates, Yehuda Katz. I'm like the, I'm like the Waldo guy, the one that doesn't fit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing because that's not entirely true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So anyways, go nominate. Those are my picks. Have a good one. All right. Josh, what are your picks? Uh, okay. Um, let me see. So I uh, have been using this cool little application on my iPhone recently. It's called Voxer, V-O-X-E-R. And it they call it a walkie-talkie for your phone. Uh, but, you know, you know my, I explained that to a friend and he's like, oh, my God, is it like that Nextel, you know, push-to-talk thing? And... It has a very small uh, 
piece of that to it. But really what I think of it is as texting using voice. And so it's, it's like a phone chat, but um, it's asynchronous. So you just you know, re- record a few seconds of text or of, of speech, and then it gets sent off to your friend and they can respond to it at, on their schedule rather than having to like respond instantly because you're on the phone synchronously. And it's, it's really cool. I've been liking it. I don't really know if I trust the, um, the, like the way they handle their information and privacy, things like that. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a caveat on this, you know, but, you know, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Um, I'm not fully endorsing it. I just think it's a pretty cool concept and, uh, I'm, I, I'm finding it useful. So, so, uh, that's a, that's a mixed review, I guess. But um, it's, I think it's worth checking out. The other thing that um, I will endorse wholeheartedly is Ryan Fate's Sticky Footer. So um, I was just uh, pointing this out to a couple people uh, recently, so I figure it's worth pointing um, everybody to. Uh, this has been around for a while. If you go to a website uh, where uh, the footer has like a lot of good stuff in it and maybe it's not too big. Like, like the GitHub footer is really tall. It takes up half the browser window if you scroll all the way to the bottom. And that's not a good thing to make stick to the bottom of the, of the window all the time. But there are some pages where uh, you just have, you know, 50 or 60 pixels at the bottom of the screen that are useful to have around all the time. You want that to stick to the bottom of the window so that if you have short content on the page, it, your footer isn't, you know, up near the top of the window. So this is just a, a cool little bit of markup in CSS to make that happen. Um, it's at ryanfate.com. That's spelled F-A-I-T, not F-A-T-E. Uh, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes. I've been using this on a bunch of different projects for years, and it has slightly more markup requirements. You have to put like an extra div in the, in the markup to uh, get it to work. But I find the CSS rules are much simpler than the competing alternative. So this is the one that I prefer. And, and then I have one little thing for the podcast world. It's called audioname.com. And Chuck, you'll love this. This is, uh, this is a thing for you can just go to this website and speak your name into your microphone and upload, it, it, you, know, upload you saying your own name. And then the next time uh, you go on like Ruby 5 or so they, they refer to you on Ruby 5 or something like that, then you'll, um, you'll have a correct pronunciation of your name somewhere where they can easily find it and pronounce your name correctly. Yay, maybe that means I'll get to be James Edward Gray II instead of James Edward Gray III or IV. Or <laughs> I thought it was James Edward Gray I I. I say it, I, I. <laughs> yeah. So I'm okay. going to go there right now and make sure that, that it's, it's pronounced correctly, your worship. That's right. <laughs> your worship. Yes. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, so that's it for me, guys. Thanks. A-V-D-I spells your excellency. All right. Yehuda, what are your um, thoughts? So I have, I have three things. Uh, first of all, I... I Maybe this is not true about people who listen to this podcast, but I have noticed lately that a lot of people don't actually really know how to use the Chrome debugger. So um, the Chrome debugger has stack traces, and you can like debu- uh, get an accept get a debug on exception, and uh, you can see the trace. You can go in, you can use the console from any point in the trace. You can see the local variables, blah blah blah. Um, uh, again, I thought everyone knew this, but I've recently discovered that many people do not, and so. Uh, my workflow is heavily uses this, and if you have exceptions in your JavaScript, you will find this useful. Um, uh, so two books. Uh, Lean Startup, a lot of people have talked about this. I'm sure you've heard oh, yeah. of it. Definitely read it, and uh, especially if you're an entrepreneur try, trying to start a company or in a company where you're responsible for um, shipping things and actually have control over the, the process of doing that. Um, and 22 Mutable Laws of Branding is a good book for... Uh, it's it's a marketing book by the guys who came up with the concept of positioning. Um, I found it. Uh, I sort of found religion in it in terms of marketing. Um, and then finally, I uh, lost my, my my iPhone at the airport, and ironically, Clout had shipped me a Windows Phone Seven. Um, I'm not going to pick Windows Phone Seven, but I want to say something about it. Um, so Clout had shipped me a Windows Phone Seven because I signed up for that perk on Clout, and. Um, Aside from the fact that it requires me to use Internet Explorer and Bing and does not have Exchange support, which is a blocker for Google, I actually found it to be a – it is clearly uh, – the UI is as good as the iPhone and 
Um, obviously, obviously very different, but I, I can't. Comp- it, it's not like the Android where I'm constantly complaining um, about the UI and the the overall uh, the amount of thought and polish that's gone into it is good. Um, like I said, though, the needing to use Internet Explorer for all web browsing and the lack of Exchange support, which is shocking, um, probably will mean that I will not use it forever. But I've been using it for since I got back from Cabo, and and I've been pleasantly surprised. I'm able to use it without feeling the need to run over to an Apple store and immediately replace my iPhone. Cool. Of course, you have to put that in there, right? I ju- just got back from Cabo. Poor guy. Uh, the, uh, I'm required. I just to be clear, disclaimer: I received the phone for free. I'm. I, I am essentially playing right into their hands, but. All right. Well, it looks like uh, I'm left to do picks. Did I get everybody else? Seems like I missed somebody. Dave wants a second round. I just realized that I forgot uh, to mention that uh, Gary Bernhardt. Uh, just posted a lightning talk from Codemash 2012. Yes, this is great. Um, it's titled "Wat," and it is falling down hilarious. Uh, you need to go. You need to go watch it if you go haven't seen it yet. Watch it. You will be yeah. laughing out loud. Yes, absolutely worth it. Yeah, yeah. My roommate actually had to check up on me to make sure I wasn't having a seizure when I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. All okay. right. So uh, I have a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is one that uh, one of the local guys here, um, he works for the company that puts this together, but I thought it was pretty cool. So it's a QR code generator, and what it does is you put in all of your information, your email address, your websites, all that stuff, um, and then you can pick three social networks, and then it'll, it'll wrap all that up into a really small QR code, and uh, it'll make that all work really well. Um, I, I think it's pretty cool, and uh, so anyway, I've had a little QR code made up, and I'm probably going to put it on my business cards and stuff, uh, just so people can, you know, scan it right into their phone or what have you. So um, you can get that at scan.me, and I'll put, I'll, like I said, I'll put a link up um, because it's their QR code generator URL. Um, another thing that uh, I've been doing just to get ready for the JavaScript Jabber podcast, I. I don't feel like I have as much expertise in JavaScript as I do in Ruby, and so I felt like I needed to maybe get a little bit better with it. And so I've been reading the um, JavaScript, the good parts, um, and that's by uh, Douglas Crockford. And uh, those are it's it's just been really enlightening. Um, a lot of the stuff that he goes over I already knew, but uh, there have been a couple of things that I wasn't quite clear on. I had a general understanding of prototypal inheritance, but, um, you know, he explained it in a little bit different way than I'd seen it before. And, uh, anyway, um, it was, it was really good. So, uh, you know, it it kind of, Oh, okay. So I can think about it that way too. And that makes some sense. So anyway, um, those, those are my two picks. And, uh, finally, you know, I'll put a link in and my third pick will be for JavaScript Jabber. Um, real simple JavaScript Jabber.com. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can pick that up as soon as we get into iTunes, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, real quick, just to wrap things up, um, we are going to be reading Land of Lisp for our book club. That will be in about a month on February 22nd. Also, this sponsor, Yay. yeah, this uh, this podcast is sponsored by New Relic, and so I just like to thank and acknowledge them. Their their tool is awesome for for figuring out what's going on in your app. And so go check them out. Um, we're going to have a link up on the website. And if you click that link, then it says that it came from us. But if you don't want to go to the website, just go to newrelic.com. Um, and other than that, leave us a review on iTunes, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thank Thanks. you for having Bye, me, guys. guys.